We recently returned from our annual family vacation uh, on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We've been going there with friends for most of the last 23 years. And each time we pack our cars with books and other essentials and we drive eight or more hours and we check in and open up our cottage, we unload the cars, make the beds and eat dinner. And then for the duration of our time there, we concentrate on three things and three things only, reading, eating, and sitting on the beach. Now, sitting on the beach, of course, is a whole body experience. The heat, the water, the sand, the birds, the suntan lotion, the salt air. We sit under our blue rental umbrellas, stunned by the sun, soothed by the sound of the ocean, the surface mesmerizing, keeping its own rhythm. It's never still, moving back and forth and in and out and nearer and farther, over and over again, till we are hypnotized. And we sit and stare at the water, half awake, half asleep, for hours at a time we sit there. But every once in a while, something breaks into our trance state. A line of prehistoric pelicans skims across the water. A plane flies across the horizon, trailing an advertisement for a local business. A green fly buzzes around their ankles, looking for the most tender parts. A group of porpoises arcs through the water, um, causing everybody to stop and stare. Now, like some of you... I'm a member of the Jaws generation, and so, um, well, the movie scared me, especially that first scene with a young woman swimming. She's swimming all by herself, waiting for her boyfriend to join her in the water, and it's dark, and everything's calm. The ocean is soft, and it's peaceful, and she's graceful and beautiful, and then something grabs her from underneath the water. Well, when we're on vacation, we don't just sit on the beach. We go in the water, and we do that slowly at first, at least I do, because it's usually freezing. Um, but eventually we work up the nerve to plunge in all together and then we ride in the waves or we stand in the surf and we bounce up and down with it. The water depth keeps changing as the, as the tide comes in and out. Sometimes it's up to your waist, then it's up to your neck, and sometimes it's over your head and you have to kind of jump up and down to keep breathing air. Well, being a member of the Jaws generation, there is always lurking at the back of my mind the possibility that something else is swimming with me, that... Something is hidden from me, but still there, not necessarily waiting for me. It's much less personal than that. Um, something that's waiting for anything. As I said, usually this danger, this awareness of danger just below the surface remains kind of in the back of my head. But then the porpoises come. Um, now, I know they won't hurt me. I'm also a member of the flipper generation. Uh, he was a dolphin and these are porpoises. But really, I mean, how much difference can there possibly be? Flipper was smart and brave and only ever hurt the bad guys and always rescued good guys. And I'm a Mennonite pastor, so we know what kind of guy that makes me. Though it's doubtful the porpoises are up on the finer distinctions among human beings, let alone denominations. And suddenly that latent sense of danger has surfaced and I find myself heading back toward my chair and my umbrella. I know porpoises won't hurt me. At least I think they won't. Um, I suppose they're indifferent to me, if anything. They're certainly not sinister. They probably have many... Better things to do than bother me, though it's conceivable, at least, that my flesh might present an appetizing target should one of them decide to go over to the dark side of the porpoise force. But the thing that bothers me about porpoises, despite the wonder and the beauty I experience as they pass, is that they remind me that the ocean is not mine at all. It doesn't belong to me. I visit it but it remains an alien world inhabited by creatures of all shapes and sizes, some of whom might just find a well-oiled and salted pasture worth a taste. The porpoises remind me that the ocean is a big place, 
filled with all manner of things to be afraid of. It's not an evil place. It's just a wild place, not in my control. And that sudden existential realization is all it takes to have me heading back to the shelter of my rented umbrella where I can be at peace. And the most I have to worry about is the occasional biting fly. Well, Matthew tells us that after Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000, he sent his disciples off across the lake, telling them that he would meet them on the other side. Now, Matthew implies that Jesus wanted some time alone. So he told the disciples to get in the boat and move along, and then he dismissed the crowd, sending them home. And when he'd done these things, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. There's nothing especially unusual about any of this. Nothing to tip us off that we're about to move from the natural to the supernatural. Nothing that reveals the truth lying just below the surface. It all makes perfect sense to us. Jesus had spent a lot of time with the crowds. He was tired of them. I know that doesn't sound very Christ-like, at least in our understanding of who Jesus is supposed to be. But he got weary, invited them to leave, and went off to be in prayer by himself. So Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and head off across the lake, and he would meet them on the other side. Now, some of the disciples, as we know, were fishers, and they were professionals. They understood what it meant to cross the lake. Now, it is important, I think, to remember that this was no small country lake. In fact, it was called the Sea of Galilee. It was about nine miles long and five miles wide. But some of the disciples, as I said, were fishermen, and would have boarded the boat with confidence. Of course, they could make it across without Jesus. It wasn't even a question. And so they set out. And then the wind turned against them, and the water grew rough. And the non-professionals among them, well, the tax collector perhaps, um, began to worry. Maybe he couldn't swim. Maybe another one felt the first stirrings of nausea. But Peter and Andrew and James and John, they just kept on pulling, struggling to make their way across without Jesus. It wasn't that far, really, and if they had to, they could land the boat and wait for the storm to pass, but they were stubborn men, and so they pushed any thought of danger to the back of their minds. We can handle this, they thought. We've done this a hundred times. They kept right on pulling. Meanwhile, each of their landlubber companions tried not to be the first one to lose his bread and fish over the side, and so it went on for who knows how long. Eventually, Matthew tells us that Jesus looked up from his prayers to discover that it was evening. We don't know how or even if Jesus knew that the disciples were in trouble. Maybe he saw the storm crossing the sea. Maybe it was the sound of the wind that interrupted his prayers. Or maybe what happened next had nothing to do with whatever danger the disciples were in. Maybe it would have happened even on a perfectly calm night when the crossing of the lake would have happened so easily that even the least seaworthy of disciples would have just enjoyed the trip. However, it came to pass, several hours later, the disciples are still struggling to make their way across the lake without Jesus. By then, it's the fourth watch, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And who knows, maybe by this time, even James and John were beginning to wonder if they were going to make it. Then one of them saw something. They saw something moving toward them across the sea. Now, in those days, the range of watery terrors was even larger than it is today because it included sea monsters and ghosts and demons and other unworldly beings whose purposes were certainly evil. And seeing the look of horror on the face of one of their companions, soon all of the disciples were aware that something was coming toward them across the water. Through the waves, on top of the waves, it was coming toward them. And they were terrified because they knew it was a ghost. 
maybe the ghost of some drowned sailor or fisherman or some other luckless person foolish enough to challenge the terrors of the sea. A ghost, perhaps bent on dragging them down, down to the place where the dead rest uneasily at the bottom of the sea. It was enough to make even the most hardened professionals cry out in fear. And so they did. Well, then Jesus spoke to them. Jesus spoke to them immediately. Do you notice that word? Jesus spoke to them immediately, Matthew tells us. Jesus saw their fear and spoke immediately to it. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, all these years later, and all those Sunday school classes later, we hear in these words an echo of the words spoken to Moses from that bush that burned but did not get consumed. It is I. I am. And so we detect this Christological claim that Matthew is making. We understand that with this story, Matthew is making a claim about Jesus, telling us that Jesus is Lord of the sea, that like the God who spoke to Moses, Jesus has the power to treat the wild sea as if it were a sidewalk. Years later, and all those Sunday school classes later, we see these things and wonder. We hear these things and we give thanks. This is no ordinary human being we serve, no ordinary human being that we call Lord. But I suspect that at least in the present circumstances that the disciples were unaware of those things. There were other things occupying their attention, like overworked muscles and the prospect of drowning and ghosts walking on the sea, and no less weird, the appearance of Jesus um, walking on the water. Well, then Peter threw out a fleece, in this case his own body, if you're Jesus, tell me to walk on the water. And Jesus told Peter to come. Uh, we can only imagine what the other disciples were thinking as they saw Peter get out of the boat and start to walk. He took one step and then another. No matter how we read this account as a description of something that really happened or as a parable of faithful walking, the story captures our imagination. And so Peter walked across the water toward Jesus but then his attention slipped. Maybe a, a gust of wind hit him in the back, or maybe a wave soaked his coat, or one of his friends yelled at him to get back in the boat. Something caused Peter to wake up and realize the danger beneath him, the danger that as a professional fisherman he would long since have learned to push to the back of his mind, the danger that exists whenever a human being enters the alien world of the sea, a world, again, that is not evil, but wild and uncontrollable, at least by human beings. And in that moment, Peter became afraid, and his fear caused him to sink. And it is only the grace of Jesus, the Christ, that saved him from his own fear, because again, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught hold of Peter and said, Silly Peter, why did you doubt? And then pulled Peter into the boat and got in after him. And as soon as they got in the boat, Matthew says, the storm stopped. There was nothing to be afraid of, not anymore. And the disciples worshipped Jesus as the Son of God. When I consider those moments when I'm reminded that there is much to this world that is out of my control, moments when I'm reminded that the world is in many ways a wild place, I am, believe it or not, grateful. Not immediately. I like to be in control as much as anybody. And so my first reaction is, 
more likely to be frustration, maybe even anger. I'm an adult, a responsible one, if I do say so myself. I've accumulated some hard-won wisdom about the way the world works. I have a handle on what makes life tick. I understand responsibility. I understand consequences. I know that one and one make two every single time. I know that reading the editorial page will always leave me depressed. I know that certain movies will always make me cry, and so on. After 51 years, I've got this stuff down. And so it's easy, I think, for me to become too confident in my ability to make sense of things, to organize life according to predictable and recognizable patterns, to arrange things just so, like books on a shelf all lined up in alphabetical order by the author's last name. My ability to do this prepares me, I believe, for those occasions when things go uh, awry. I'm cool under pressure, I tell myself. I can see things through. It's my responsibility to make it to the other side of the lake, something I've done many times before. And so I get in the boat and I begin to row, knowing exactly what rhythm I need to set in order to make it across before dark. I need no map. I need no assistant. I need no co-pilot and certainly no backseat driver. I can do this on my own strength, my own skill, my own wisdom. And so I do. We all do. Much of the time. But one night a storm whips up. No problem, I think. I can handle this. I'm cool under pressure. Not apt to lose my head because of a little wind and rain. And again, most of the time, I'm sufficient to the task. Most of the time, we are sufficient to the task. And so make it to the other side. But one night a storm whips up. And this time we feel something different in the wind. A, a chill of fear blows through us. We pull harder, wishing suddenly that we'd remembered to wear a slicker. Or we keep pulling, uh, wishing that maybe we'd thought to bring along a lamp, not so much to light the way as to just bring us some comfort. We strain to keep pulling, though it's getting harder with each stroke. We make the mistake of thinking about what other things the sea holds, cold things, things with teeth, things with appetites, things without compassion, things incapable of being moved by our plight. And now we wonder if we will ever make it to the other side. Then in some way we cannot explain, we become aware of someone walking toward us. Now we don't believe in ghosts. So maybe we assume it's our conscience uh, coming to give us a speech about the foolishness of human pride, the illusion of human self-sufficiency, the sin of placing all of one's trust and faith in one's own ability to make one's own way, that American sin which we have turned into a virtue, that pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps attitude that serves us so well when everything is going well, but leaves us desolate by the side of the road when the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, or afraid out in the middle of the sea in a storm, when whatever strength we had to make it to the other side is long since gone. And the last thing we want to hear at that moment of crisis is, I told you so, even if it's coming from our own heads. And so we cry out, not so much in fear, but, well, we don't believe in ghosts, right? We cry out in anger and insist that that voice, that conscience, leave us alone. Let us be. Let us die. Then another voice speaks to us. Not the nagging voice of an exasperated parent, but the loving voice, perhaps, of a mother or father or older sister or brother. Someone who knows us better than we know ourselves. Someone who's painfully aware of our pride. 
our delusion of self-sufficiency and the fragility of both. And that loving, patient voice tells us, do not be afraid. We're not alone after all. I am with you, the voice says, in words which echo with the authority of heaven. I am with you. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I confess that at those times, I am like Peter, tempted to get out of the boat and run to Jesus, to remove myself from whatever mess I'm in and go to Jesus, from whose side I can survey the wreckage and shake my head and feel good about my own last-ditch effort to redeem the situation, to call on Jesus to empower me to regain control of the situation, to walk on the water, never mind the storm or the wind or even those dangers lurking somewhere below the surface, to try my best to get Jesus to endorse my latest effort at mastery. And sometimes, perhaps out of pity or in an effort to help me wake up and smell the salt spray, sometimes Jesus says, go ahead, do your best. But before I've made two or three steps, I realize that What I'm doing has less to do with faith in Jesus and more to do with my own effort to regain my sense of being on top of things, to claim some power over a situation I cannot control, to claim for myself what ultimately remains the prerogative of the deity, to once again prove to myself that I am self-sufficient, my faith is sufficient, I am independent, and yes, in fact, I am God-like enough and my ability to overcome anything. And with that realization, I begin to sink. And then for the first time, I really do cry out for help. For the first time, I really do ask Jesus to save me. For the first time, but not the last, I know in my deepest heart that if Jesus does not take my hand, I will die. I will drown. I will die. And so, at that point, I gladly hear the words from Jesus reminding me that I have little faith. I gladly hear them because it is, I believe, in that moment that I'm returned to my right mind. Why do I doubt? It's because I'm only a human being, that's why. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not God. I'm a disciple. That's all. Nothing more. Nothing less. Of course I doubt. And in that moment of clarity, in that moment of truth, in that moment of self-awareness, all my little idols are exposed. The idol of my self-sufficiency, the idol of my control, the idol of my independence, the idol that I have made of my own little faith. They are one by one revealed to be nothing more than bits of wood or stone without the power to lift me out of the water, let alone calm the storm. And in that moment, I am saved. Again, saved from the storm, saved from myself. In that moment, as I recognize again my utter dependence on God, who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the ocean and all of their inhabitants, in that moment I can honestly say there really is nothing to be afraid of. I give thanks for those porpoises whose graceful dance across the horizon reminds me that there are things in the ocean I ought to fear, that the ocean is a wild place, untamable and out of my control and out of the control of any human being, no matter how powerful. 
Such reminders, even on a vacation, are signs of grace. They are gifts from God. They are words of comfort and peace from Jesus himself. The world is a wild place, and there is little we can do about it on our own. There are many things to fear, and most of all, perhaps, our human tendency to consider ourselves self-sufficient, invincible, capable of working our will on this planet and on one another. All of that, all of that, all of that is idolatry. The theological and spiritual equivalent of saving wooden nickels and then calling ourselves rich. If not today, then someday a storm will come which will reveal our powerlessness. But even then, even then, Matthew tells us, even then we need not be afraid because Jesus in his mercy will lift us up and will lift us up and will lift us up and get into the boat with us and the storm will cease and there will be nothing to be afraid of. And there for the first, the second, or the third, or the hundredth time, there in that only truly safe place, we will fall to our knees and worship Jesus as the Son of God. Amen.